Karen Anders, who listens. In fact, during the feast, she was listening to every sermon. But she's just not physically able to uh, come. So that for her, virtual service is great. Uh, even though we don't have a video production, a lot of the churches do. Uh, I think uh, United and Cogwa and I don't know, even there's a whole bunch of them out there that they have that capability. We just haven't haven't done that. Anyway, for the sermon, I have seven points, but um, I just did that for my uh, keeping myself going in the right direction. The uh, Daryl brought out how from Passover to the last great day is the God's calendar. And we have six months where we are constantly being fed God's Word. You know, we have the Passover and then uh, seven days of unleavened bread. I know we in in our study have proved that Passover is the first day of unleavened bread. So most of the church actually keep eight days of unleavened bread, even though the Scriptures are plain that you only have seven. Uh, but that's that's good because see, the Passover is for everybody. In my thinking, you know, and this is not doctrine, it's just my thinking that uh, I, I look at it as the Passover has to fall on every day of the week for all 7,000 years. Otherwise, what happens if they don't have it, uh, like a lot of places, uh, come the fall feast, they say, well, they can never fall back to back like what we have. Like yesterday was the last great day for most of the church. Today is the last great day. But they have this, uh, and I've been told directly by one minister that you can't have back to back Sabbaths in the fall. Well, what is, how does that fit? With, with God's plan. What about the people, uh, if, if you can't have a, a feast on a Friday, what about that sixth day? Are those people left out of, uh, of the last great day or are they left out of the Passover? I mean, out of the, uh, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles? The only day that has a definite time frame is Pentecost. And that's because it's for the church. And so in my study, I've seen that Passover is for the for everybody. Days of unleavened bread are for everybody. Pentecost is for the bride. It's for the called out ones, the, the particular people that God is going to use. The last trump, who is that for? Well, in one sense... It's for humanity because many of them are going to perish. But but the last trump has a special meaning to each one of us. We're going to be changed. If we are doing things God's way, we are no longer going to be human beings. We will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling eye. And those that are asleep will be raised first. And then we will get that opportunity. So it looks like the seventh trump or the... Feast of Trumpet is for us. It's important for us. What about Day of Atonement? That's specifically for us because the Day of Atonement says at one, the church, 
the body, the bride, will become one. And all through Scripture, there's a thread that goes through on marriage. And God said, even there in the first book, in the first few chapters, He said, a man will leave his father and mother and take to him his wife, and those two will become one. And so throughout the whole Scriptures, we can see that the unification of God and the bride becoming one. So we'll always be with Christ. Just like Christ says, uh, the bride will be with the husband. A man and his wife will be one. They will leave their former things. So we'll leave humanity and become God. So the Day of Atonement is for us. It's a very important time. But the Feast of Tabernacles is for who? For those that begin to go and have somehow uh, God, how He chooses, we don't know, but there will be a group of people. It appears maybe a hundred million people, more or less, we, we don't know, will live into the millennium. And those people then, we're going to have the chance to teach. And Daryl brought that out through the feast. It's a, and, and, and that's a fantastic opportunity for all, for those people to realize that one day they're going to get the opportunity to know what you know. We have a lot of knowledge that the world doesn't have. Many of the church, and I, you know, I've listened to a lot of different sermons, different people. Uh, I've heard them say that there's the, the bride will be resurrected on, on uh, Pentecost. It doesn't fit Scripture. That's the problem. It doesn't fit Scripture. So we have to, to ourselves, we're going to have to do as Herbert Armstrong said, and I'll bring this up later. You've got to check the Scriptures out. Does it match what you've been told? So we now have gone through all of God's holy days. We're in a point now, a point of time, there's six months between now and Passover. And it's been my experience in the church to notice that we're fired up. I mean, we've had, you know, we've had eight, and here we're having ten sermons. And, and we're fired up and we've got all this energy and we, we're ready to be a part of what God's going to do. And then what happens at December, November, December, January, February. We have, I've seen in the church that we leave our, for the most people have gone someplace else. They come home and they're easily walked back into their life where you were before. Because we're human, you know. We have to eat, we have to sleep, we have to work. Uh, we have to fix things. We have to do a lot of different things. And it's easy to get sidetracked. You're fired up. And, and for us, I have to ask, uh, what now? What are we going to do? We've had this uh, uh, six months of uh, specific training and leadership and, and encouraging us to do things God's way. But now we got six months of we're just sitting there, you know, or, or are we sitting there? 
So where do we go from here? From the Passover coming up in six months. Uh, there, are, there are many ways or things that are going, are going on in the world today. I mean, it is a year ago, most of the church, I don't care what size they were, uh, 25, 10, two or three hundred, sometimes several thousand, they met together. This year, isn't it different? They're virtual churches. They're not meeting together. How quickly we've seen a change happen. How quickly we've seen the freedoms that we seem to enjoy have literally been stripped away. And they're being stripped away more and more and more every day. So, I brought out in one of the past two sermons, uh, I put out that we shouldn't go to sleep. I brought out 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, where it says, not to sleep. Be careful. So, here we go into this. It's been said, and I've heard it said many, many years, uh, we're in the dark side. Uh, we're, we're in this period of time where there's no specific training except on the Sabbath. Except on the Sabbath. See, we, we kind of take that um, lightly sometimes. Because the Sabbath is God's holy day. And it is a very important time. Uh, if, you, if you take it too lightly, where are you going to be? So, when I brought out, wake up. You know, uh, uh, Isaiah 52. I remember... I don't know, maybe it was 15 years ago, 16 years ago, Daryl was reading Isaiah 52, and, and he was talking about it, and then he pounds on the table and says, wake up, wake up. That's what it says in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, you can write that down. I'll just read that to you. Isaiah 52 says, wake up, wake up. Put on strength, O Zion. Who's Zion? Daryl's brought that out during the feast. Uh, Revelation uh, 12, 22, 23. It says, Wake up, O Zion. Put on strength. Put on your beautiful garments. And that was what we were being trained and taught through every one of the feast days. Getting the right garments, the right clothing on. What clothing? We're talking about spiritual clothing. The right frame of mind. The right attitude. And then it goes on, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come unto you uncircumcised or the, or the unclean. So, God's going to set a time when the church and those that are, are changing their lives is going to put together. I think, on my own personal opinion is that Pentecost uh, is when God or Christ is proposing to the bride. And I've heard sermons where people say, no, Pentecost is where God's going to resurrect them uh, to spiritual life. doesn't fit Scripture. I'm sorry, that does not fit Scripture. But it could be, speculation on my part, it could be that Pentecost, God will take uh, the bride to a place of safety. 
And that's only speculation on my part. But others have said, no, it can't. No, it doesn't. It has to fit Scripture. It has to fit the Scriptures. So, here we see that God is telling us what's going to happen. He wants us to wake up. He wants us not to, this period of time, from Feast of Tabernacles to Pentecost, not to go to sleep. It's important that you, you realize that it is easy as a human being to, to be pulled aside. It's easy to, to, to become laxed. But God doesn't want that, so He emphasized that through many scriptures. You can look up, look up, going to sleep. There's many, many scriptures, and I just don't want to cover all of them. You can put down Haggai 2.4. Haggai 2.4 says, Yet, now be strong, O Zerubbabel, says the Eternal. And you heard Daryl talk about the two witnesses, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And he says to them, specifically, be strong. And to be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, he goes on to it, not only to Zechariah and Zerubbabel, but he says to all of us, Be strong, all you people of the land, says the Eternal, and work. Uh, he wants us to do something. He doesn't want us to sit back and take it easy. Work doing what? Work on your spiritual uh, attitude or your spiritual growth or your your as. Daryl did, I think it was 11 sermons on friendship with God. Work on your friendship with God. For he says in the end, For I am with you, said the eternal host. God says, I'm going to stay with you. I'm not going to dump you. I'm going to help you. He wants us to be a part of his family. But he also warns us. He warns us about going to sleep. I've, I've got down here just some, some notes from Revelation 2 and 3. Here he's talking to the church. And if we will recognize, he says, listen to what I say to the churches. So it is important what he says to each group. He gave them uh, admonishment. He said how great you were doing. But he also pointed out things that you lack. And so, as, as we go through this dark period, which isn't a dark period, it is a time to uh, reemphasize, to strengthen ourselves, as he said there in, Zach, in Haggai, uh, work. We should work at what we should do. So he said to Ephesus, one of the problems he said that and I've seen this in my life, and I've seen it in the life of a lot of people in the church. So to Ephesus, he said, one of the things that you do wrong is you forgot where you came from. So each one of us, we should, why did I come out here? Uh, why am I in this little group? Uh, why am I even in part of God's way of life? I remember when I came into the church in 1963, uh, my first physical contact was at Charnel's birthday, first birthday, 
And I couldn't get enough. I mean, I prayed. I set it up where every day I had an hour of prayer, an hour of Bible study in the morning before I had to go to work. Uh, But you know, we were excited because Christ is going to return in 1975. That means in 1972, we're going to go to a place of safety. And we were just fired up and we we studied, we, we did everything. Uh, 72 came, 75 came, 82 came, 85, uh, 92, uh, and then we hit the church disintegrating. And throughout those periods, it was easy to sit back and say, ah, Christ delays His coming. He's waiting. Uh, and it was said. I heard it said in sermons. Christ didn't come yet because we just are not fired up enough. So Christ is holding it. He's holding His coming back. We didn't know the Scripture. That's, you know, it, it's okay to be fired up and look for Christ coming. The apostles did. But sooner or later, you have to come to the point to see that you can't give up. And that they did not give up until they died. They stayed with it. So we see in Ephesus. So if he said it to Ephesus, he says, Look, I mean you too. You're part of the church. Listen to what I say because it can be in your life too. So you left your first love. You forgot where you came from. You forgot why you did these things. To Smyrna, he says, Look, you're rich. You're rich. And he said to Smyrna, But fear none of the things which you shall suffer. So he's saying that there's sometimes we're going to put up with some junk. We're going to be hit upon with different things. You're going to be pressed to change. You're going to find it. And what do we see today? We see where a year ago you could get on your boat and go fishing. If you're in Michigan, you can't have a boat and go out fishing unless it's a rowboat. You can't put a motor on it. Why? What's the difference? So he said, there are things you're going to suffer. And those people in that area, and another, I know in this Arizona Strip, we don't notice as much as if you were in uh, Dallas or San Francisco or uh, Washington, D.C. or you know, any of the big cities. Vegas. Uh, we don't see the pressures that going on there because in this script we have it pretty much we've been pretty well let let go but Daryl I mean Daryl God said to us to leave the city wasn't that great leave the big cities and look what's happening isn't it fantastic God says leave the big cities and look what's happening in the big cities so so to Smyrna he says fear none of the things that you're going to suffer so keep it under your hat and just remember God is going to be with you. He said, I am with you all the time. He made that promise. God does never go back on His promises. To Smyrna, he writes, he tells Smyrna and to us, hold fast to, to my name. Hold fast to the name of Christ. To God the Father. 
and and do not deny your faith. So you have to look at yourself and it's a personal deal. Your faith and what you do with your life is personal. And and it's important that every day you look at what I'm doing and because it's easy to be sidetracked. To Thyatira, he writes, I know your works. He says, I know that you're love and that you serve other people, that you have good faith, that you have patience. And, and it's a virtue of God to have patience. And But it's easy to lose patience when you get trials and tribulations and pressures that come from outside. But he says, have that patience. And the last is more than the first. So, the closer we get to the day of the end, you need more patience and more trust in God. And he says, you don't told them at Thyatira and to us. Don't allow the actions or the attitudes that Jezebel brought into the church. A lot of sexual, uh, ungodly actions so he says, don't allow that into, into your congregation, into your church, into your life, into your personal life. Because it can be a personal thing that can distract you. To Sardis he writes, he says, look, remember, from, uh, remember therefore how you have received and heard and hold fast. Why? Because Sardis died. Sardis lost that desire to keep doing things God's way. And basically, the whole congregation of that, that church era, which is a church here today, that they, they, they're not, they didn't hold fast and they died. But he said, there are a few. There are a few in Sardis. So, ask yourself, am I one of those few that is still holding to the truth that was brought to me when I first came in, going back to uh, Ephesus, am I going back to that first love, that desire to do things God's way? To Philadelphia, he said, because you have kept the word of my patience. Are we keeping? We want to be Philadelphia. Most of the church out there, they, they, they all say, well, we're Philadelphia and the rest of you are Laodiceans. Well, how can we, how can we do that? It can only be is, am I? It has to be a personal thing. It goes back to the being a friend of God. That's sermons, that 11 sermons of, am I God's friend? Is God my friend? So it's a two-way street. Am I God's friend? And is God my friend? Do I really rely on Him? So to Philadelphia, he says, because you kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation. So if we are so locked to God, when that big temptation comes along, He promised He will keep you from being distracted and pulled aside. So it's important that we, we follow all those things. But notice Laodicean. So he, with Laodicea, it, it's a little different. He looks out there and he says, because it's so easy to be distracted, he said, look, 
I can deal with you if you're not a part. You know, you're just you're just a human being. I have no problem with that. And I have no problem if you're so fired up that you've not lost that first love, that you have all these things that they told us each one of the churches to do, and you're there and you're you're right. So I can work with you too. But what I can't work with is a person that's wishy-washy. Today he's strong, tomorrow he's not. Today uh, you're you're okay. I can do things God's way, uh, uh, but. If something comes along uh, physically that seems more important to me, then I will do that. So that's a person that God says, I just can't deal with that. I'm not going to deal with a person who I cannot guarantee that they're going to do it my way. And so he says, for those people, uh, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. But he did make a statement that to those that are wishy-washy, he says, look, uh, I want you to go out and buy gold tried in the fire. And so what's going to happen? If you're wishy-washy and you're not, con- you're, not, you're not going a specific way, you can go either way and you can just bounce around from place to place and attitude to attitude or a frame of mind to frame of mind, He's going to bring you down and you will be put into the tribulation. Think of that. If you're wishy-washy, you're going to go to the tribulation. Because He still says, I'm going to be with you. Okay, I want you to be a part of my way of life. But I might have to pressure you to that point that you're going to finally say, okay, I will give my life for you. I want to be your friend and I need you to be my friend. And, and uh, you know, when Christ was about to die, I brought this out last sermon. He said, I don't want to die. And you could be in that position too. If you're wishy-washy and you go into the tribulation, you can be that position too. And you're going to have to say, Father, I don't want to die. I don't want to go through beating and all that's going to happen. Because you're going to know that things are going to happen. But you're going to have to turn around and be just like Christ and say, okay, Father, not my will, but your will. And it's God's will that you become part of His family. And so you'll have to take whatever comes down and give up your life that God's will will be done. God is, He's not a God of hatred. It's a, it, you know, no matter what comes down in the next six months, God's still going to be with you. He is in it for each one of us. He's in it for you. You can say, God is in this for me. He wants me to be a part of it. Uh, he gives us some encouragement too, you know, because there's pressures, there's problems, and sometimes it's, you know, we hear sermons and maybe we feel like they beat the mess out of us. <laughs> I, I do that quite often. I hear a sermon, and I'll, I'll go home and I'll say, "Man, God through Daryl beat the mess out of me." <laughs> I mean, you know, I just can't take it sometimes. But I have to go home and say, 
But there are encouraging things too. Because sometimes I ask in prayer, I say in God, uh, I don't understand this. Can you help me? And so I go to a sermon and I get beat up. <laughs> Did I ask for it? I guess. Did God answer it? I guess. Do I have to make changes? You're right. I got to make changes and I got to do it what God wants done. But He also is not out there always beating us. You know, He tells us that sermons or His Word teaches us, leads us, corrects us when we're wrong, but encourages us too. In Psalm, turn to Psalm chapter 91, the book of Psalm. Chapter 91. This is an encouraging psalm to for us. It should be encouraging. Of course, you could go to pick out any number of the psalms. In fact, you could read them all, and they have encouraging, encouragement, and leading us to the right way. Psalms chapter 91, verse 1. He that dwells in the secret places of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. If we're striving and looking for God's help, we are, we're abiding in the secret places of God. And He says, He's going to be a shadow to us. We've heard in the sermon, even this, this feast, God's going to put a covert over us and protect us. If the enemy comes after, don't worry about it. They're not going to make it. They're just not going to make it. He is going to protect us. He's going to be our shadow and protector. Verse 2, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge. So, it's encouraging to think, no matter what happens, no matter all these things that said to happen to the churches, and to and we read what's going to happen, and Gar- Daryl has covered that throughout the feast, many things are going to happen to people. But we can look out and say, God is my fortress. I mean, He's the one who's going to protect me. That's encouraging. God is he's my fortress. God is my, in Him I trust. If I put my trust in God, and whether it be this damnable lawsuit against the church, God is my trust. He gave us this property. I believe, I trust that until it does, until He doesn't want it, that it's His property. And He's going to protect us. It's a great place for us to live. It's, it's fantastically cheap. Fact is, you tell people that people went out and, and tried to sue and take it away and, and you're only paying $100 a month and they think, uh, which bridge are they looking for? Because, you know, it could hardly find a bridge to live under. And many people are looking for those things. So he's my trust. Surely, verse 3, he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the noisome pestilence. He's going to protect you. These things are going to come. The Good News Bible reads verse 3 as, He will keep you safe from all hidden dangers. He promises that. That's encouraging. And from all deadly diseases. So even if they've got these uh, covert virus 
which is manufactured, which they are trying to kill us with. He says, don't worry about it. I'm going to protect you. Verse 4, He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings shall you trust. His His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You know, you go to battle, you have to have a shield out there in front of you. And you have to have a buckler. You have to be protected. That's who God is. He's there to protect us. Verse 5, encouraging to know that we have a God who will be our shield when the time when we need the shield, He'll be there. You shall not be afraid for the terror of night. Things are going to happen at night. They already are predicting when these this country starts going down because we have thumbed our nose at God. You know, put the branch to the nose. You know, we, we're telling God we don't need Him. You can hear that in the news everywhere. We don't need God. There, and, and there is no God. So, the terror that comes at night. They talk of these people coming in at night with their night vision. And they got very good night vision. And how do you escape? You know, if you don't have God there to protect you. Nor for the arrows that fire through the day. Nor for the pestilence that walk in the darkness. Nor in the destruction of the waste at noon. So, these things are coming down. But God says, I am there for you. Verse 7. And I'll read this from the Good News Bible. Verse 7. A thousand may fall beside you. Can you imagine that? This destruction that's coming with the seven plagues, the trumpet plagues, and that coming after that. You'll see thousands of people die right there beside you and 10,000 all around you. But the encouragement is that you will not be harmed. He's promising that. That's encouraging to me. I can look out there and say, thank you, Father, for, for bringing me here, for giving me the knowledge, for the, to know that I'm your friend. A true friend will give his life for his friend. And we want God to be our friend. And He's promised, as a friend, I will have your back. I'll have your front. I'll have your sides. I will be there for you all the time. Verse 8. Only with your eyes shall you behold and see the reward of the wicked. Right? We will see that. You know, it's hard. Uh, You see people that are going contrary to God. You see them uh, prosper. They have everything. New houses, big houses, cars, boats, you know, everything they want. And, and yet we're, we're right here. Well, don't worry about that, God said. They have a reward. Their reward is not what I want. Their reward is physical prosperity and physical, uh, uh, people liking you and putting you on high and stuff. But their reward 
is death. Destruction. And, and it's coming on them. Verse 9, Because you have made the eternal, which is my refuge, even the most high, your habitation. Because we've decided that we're in God's organization. Okay, His organization is vast. It's only going to have 144,000 at this time. And He's offered that to us. So we can, uh, we can take refuge in that. He's going to protect His people. There's no doubt about it. Verse 10, There shall no evil befall you. That's a promise. That's encouraging. Neither shall any plague come nigh to your dwelling. For He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. If your ways are God's ways, there's angels out there who one angel can take out tens of thousands of people. So, why are we worried? We have no worries to, have, to think about if we are doing it God's way. What a blessing that we can sit back and, and, and I encourage you to read more of the Psalms because the Psalms are full of encouragement. David wrote those songs as if it was Christ speaking. So he's encouraging us. And it's such a blessing to me to think that I can call on the Father through Christ and know that He will be there, that He will help me, that He will lead me. You know, I did that sermon on choices. And so I need to realize that I've got to make the choice and making the right choice will make the difference in how you fare. There will be a group, small group, a 10% that God of 10% of the, of the people that are doing it God's way that will be taken to a place of safety. The other 90%, which we don't know exactly how many people that will amount to be, will be have to go through the tribulation and they'll have to get to that point where they will have to say, not my will, but yours, and give their life because they will have to buy God's way of life through trial. That's what I says through a fire. Fiery trial, sir. You're going to have to be, you're going to have to be committed completely, 100% to God. But it is a blessing to know either way, if you do it God's way, You'll be a part. And you make the right choice. And in the tribulation, if you happen to have to go there, you have to make the right choice or you won't be there. God has warned us time and time again that the devil, Satan, the adversary, is out there and he is going to try to interfere with all our good intentions. So we have good intentions and we also have God's way. And we have God's knowledge and God's work. But Satan is out there and he is going to do all he can to destroy who you are. He, Satan hates the church more than anything else. 
because the church is to become, to get what was offered to him, what he had, and he gave up. And so his hatred for anybody that's going to be a part of the family of God is horrendous. And he will do all he possibly can to distract you. I don't care who we are. God has called each one of us. God has brought us here. God has brought wherever the church is, wherever those are striving to be is, He's put them there. He selects and puts you where you are today. I came out here because one day at the Feast of Tabernacles in 2001, thinking of the sermons that were going on, and I stood up there and all of a sudden I said, God has told me I've got to come out of out of Fort Myers, Florida. I have to leave my family and come to the desert. And and that is a, a blessing. He warned me and I believed Him and I made that decision to come out here. But the devil, Satan, our adversary, doesn't want us to be here. He doesn't want you here. And so he's done a lot of things to keep you away. He keeps throwing things at us left and right. He keeps throwing these things, throwing them out, throwing them out at you. Are we going to let him do that to us? 1 Peter 5, verse 8. This is where we're, we're warned by God how Satan, how devious this, this fallen angel is. So in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober. You know, don't, don't be drunk with everything that you do, but be sober-minded. Be vigilant. That means get out there and put your nose to the grindstone and your, and your shoulder to the road and keep going. Don't, don't allow it to be swayed. Become, because your adversary, and God is warning us here, He says our adversary, our enemy, God's enemy, the devil is a roaring lion. You ever think what you would do if you were in the woods and you heard you had nothing but a, not even a gun and you're in the woods and you hear a lion roar? What's that going to do to you? It's going to scare the mess out of you, isn't it? Uh, you're going to be looking for some place to hide and be protective. So God says, this is who Satan is. He's the roaring lion puts fear, tremendous fear into your heart. And Satan walks about seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy every one of God's people. And he is out there. He wants to destroy you. You've got to get that down pat. It's nothing to take lightly. That's why he uses the terms as a roaring lion. Because it is a dangerous situation. Ephesians 4, verse 27. Here God warns us again. Another warning about the devil. Neither give place to the devil. That means don't allow his actions or the attitudes or the things around you to distract you. If you make the wrong choice, you're going to lose an awful lot. 
eternal life is so fantastic. It's just we need to get that fixed in our minds one more time in James 4. James chapter 4. God's warning. He's warning us, admonishing us, uh, asking us. He says, submit yourself to God. We have to submit. It's hard sometimes. We we think we hear things pull us to different directions, but do we submit to what God has taught us? So you have Sabbath services. You had many services from Passover to today. I think I counted up uh, seventeen or eighteen sermons that uh, just Holy Day sermons through to today that have encouraged you, have asked you to come. And then he says, resist Satan. And if you resist Satan, if you resistance to do his will, his way of life, Satan's not going to stay around. But you have to resist him. You can't just play around. You can't just think, well, he'll leave if, I, if, I, you know, if I'm wishy-washy. No, that ain't going to work. You have to resist Satan. That is the right choice. The wrong choice is to let him come into your life. The right choice is to resist him and he will stay away. How then? If Satan is our adversary, if Satan's out here wanting to destroy us, how does Satan attack us? Oh, he's, he's the master. He knows every trick of the trade. I mean, you can't... Uh, you know, they had that song of the kid that played the violin and, and Satan had the golden violin and said, if I can, you know, if you can outplay... You can't outplay Dick. You can't outbeat Satan. Don't even give it a beginning of a chance to think that you can outdo Satan on anything. He is the master. He knows every trick of the trade. So how then... Is Satan able to get a hold of us? If we're not making the right choices, if we're not aware of what happens, he does it through deception. And there's many ways of deception. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, reading from the Good News Bible, he says, My children... The end is near. Do we not see that? Have we not heard that through the sermons through this past feast? The end is near. You were told that the enemy of Christ would come. We, we hear that. The enemy's coming. And how many enemies of Christ have, have already happened, are already here. And so we that know, uh, are, so we know that the end is near because we see the deception out there. There is a great deception in this country. It's happening, it happens to the church. We were deceived in the 90s or 80s or back in the 70s we were being deceived. And 
really got deceived after Herbert Armstrong died, and he tried to get it back on. I remember many times Herbert Armstrong says, the church is off track, get us back on track. But it was very difficult because the deception was so strong. But in this country is being deceived. There is a great deception that the majority of the people of this country don't understand. And it's called a color revolution. What is a color revolution? It's where you destroy the country from within. And there are many ways that that's happened. And this happens in our own lives too. The color revolution is number one. Look at what's happened in the, in, in the past year. In the past year. First of all, they got to control the media. Well, in our lives, they try to control the church. The sermons or, or news that we get or, or sidetracked by, by just the, just what's happening. So first of all, they control the media and by controlling the media, they feed you wrong information. The second thing which affects us is that they destroy religion. And we've seen that. They have tried to shut down all and anything that would relate toward Christ. They, they're shutting down the church. We're, we have sat here and we've taken it because we live in an area on the Arizona Strip that we have the freedoms that we can meet together and worship God in the right way. Another way that this destruction of it is to indoctrinate the children. And you can see that happening in this country. So this color revolution, the deception in this country, the deception of this country, they have, they, they are, they've indoctrinated the children into thinking, and I've got a grand, so I know this, I've got a granddaughter who's been uh, swayed to think that what they're doing is good. But she doesn't understand it's all set up to destroy this country. Another thing they do is the criminal justice overhaul. Do we not hear that? Get rid of the police department. Defund the police department. What do you expect happens when you defund the police department? Chaos? Like we've seen in Portland and, and other areas in San Francisco? Uh, it's, it's, so... Defund it and then turn criminals free. And who do they put in jail? If you don't wear a mask, they shoot you with a, a laser and they put you in jail because you don't wear a mask and they let criminals free. I, I just say, if you got an internet, go and look up that thing. Look up color revolution. See if that's not what's exactly happening to this country. The country is being deceived by Satan, by those that he works with. Well, but what about us? Are we being deceived? Is there ways that you are deceived? Can you be deceived? Well, yes. I've put down just a few. There's a lot of ways. One way is out-and-out lies. They actually... And you hear that in the news... Direct lies. You hear a presidential uh, debate 
Who's telling the truth? They're both lying. You don't know the truth. You're not going to be told the truth. The truth is to destroy the country, but you're not going to tell you that. Remember in my last sermon I talked about the prophet that was sent to, to tell the king what's going to happen? And he had a commission. But how was he deceived? An older prophet? He looked to and said, this guy's an older prophet. And the prophet lied to him. And what happened? He lost his life. So we have to be careful. If it's not in the Bible, then you better make sure what's being said is from the Bible. So, this king, I mean this uh, prophet, gave his life because he listened to a lie. And he was deceived. Flattery. That's another way that you can be deceived. People can talk how great you are, you know. They can say, you're so great. You do all these great things. Uh, Put down in your notes. Read all of Second Kings twenty-two five through twelve. Here's where King Ahab, uh, in verse three, says, "And King Ahab, or, or the king of Israel, which is King Ahab, said to his servants, How shall uh, know you that Ramoth in Gilead is ours?' So here the king says, you know this." Bit of territory that belongs to us, and we, and we, and we be still and take it not out of the hand of the king of Assyria. So here he is. This is the setup. Uh, he wanted the land back, but Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Israel, uh, the Jews, Jews uh, at that time. He said, inquire, I pray you, of the word of the Lord. So, he asked him to pray. So, King Ahab, as this story goes on, and you can read it and read through there, Ahab calls his counselors or his prophets. And what did they do? They said, oh yeah, you're the great king. They built him up. They flattered him with knowledge and stuff. Yeah, you're, we're the greatest army out here. And they flattered him and said, go out there and you're going to win the battle. And so they brought in, uh, so a, uh, Jehoshaphat said, but don't you have a, a prophet of God? Because he could see that these were people that were just building the king up. And yeah, we have one, but he doesn't, he does not tell me anything that's good for me. And I cry about it because I, I was always predicting wrong things for me. Uh, well, so they brought him in there, and he was told, the prophet Micaiah was told, look, this is what everybody else says. And to make the king feel good, you say the same thing. So he did. He said, yeah, go on out there and win the battle. And, and, but Ahab said, yeah, but uh, what does God say? He said, well, if you go out there, you won't come back. So he didn't flatter him, but the others did. What happened? The end result of the whole battle was Ahab died. They lost the battle. But Ahab went to, to battle because of flattery. Sorry, but that's what happened. 
Another thing that can deceive you and pull you away from God's way and doing the right thing is there are people with a goodly state, say a governor or a mayor or a, you know just somebody that has some some power, maybe a, a, a football player. People that like football, he's a great honored guy. He's got it, and 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 they can tell you stories and lead you the wrong way. You know, people have their idols. You know, we even have a whole uh, program where they were the the American Idol or the English Idol, or you know, where they they set people up, and it's easy to be swayed by. Somebody who has some power one way or another. Another way would someone with a great story. You know, uh, people can tell a story, you know, like they talk about the fish story. I caught a fish. That fish was that big. You know, you know that big. But we got it out here so you think that this story is a lot better and you can believe those stories. And it happens in the church. There are there are places in the church where they're talking about if you're not with this group, with my group, and I am uh, the only one, and, and there's, I don't want to get into who they are, but there are groups out there. If you're not here, you're not going to be a part of the church. We say we're a little cog. We took the name a congregation. We're just one little cog in this big wheel of God's. So, we know that, yes, we're going, we have an opportunity. And we have an opportunity to be examples to those that come in. But we're not all the church. There are many out there. But there are some churches that say, if you're not here, you're not in the church. You're a Laodicean. We are the Philadelphians. But the Philadelphians have difficulties too. Just like the rest of the church. When God, remember I read there, God says to the churches, to all of the church, wherever they are. So be careful of some great story that might seem good, but doesn't match Scripture. And there's, I got one more. Someone who tends to leave out all the facts. You've heard that in this debate stuff. They, they don't tell you everything. But what God expects, as He shows in Proverbs 18.13, He that answers a matter before He hears it, it is folly and shame to Him. So in other words, He says, get the facts. So if you hear something and it sounds good, what are the facts? Do the facts match Scripture? And that's the important part. The last thing I want to bring out is the difference between what we think inside us or the mind of man versus God's mind. Because they're different. In Jeremiah 17.10, I mean 9, God says the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. So we have to look at ourselves as that a lot of things we can do are not going to be up to God's standard. But God has a standard. And He says, 
encouraging. It's encouraging for me to hear God say, but I try the reins of the heart. So he's looking at you and saying, yeah, you are wrong, but what do you do? In Galatians 5, is in the same way. You know, Galatians 5, you have the mind of man, all the things that we can we can put together, do that will bless us or, or make us feel good. But on the other hand, the mind of God is the fruits of the Spirit. So we have the, the ways of men versus the fruits of the Spirit. And, and that's what God expects from us. Remember what Christ said in Matthew 13? Man's mind looks for the easy way. We can, we're gonna go, we're gonna live the easy way of life. It's so easy. All we have to do, as you, as most of the Protestant churches say, just say Christ. Jesus Christ. And we're saved. Christ said something different in Matthew 13. He said the way to eternal life is a narrow, small path. And only a few are going to find it. So, Satan's great deception, Satan's way, will actually take you down. You have to make right decisions. You have to make right choices. And if you don't, if you allow Satan to deceive you. So be where He is that roaring lion. He is the master of these things. You might think you can, you can defeat Him on your own. You can't. The only way you're going to defeat Satan is you have God. You're with God. He is your friend. And you're His friend. That's the only way you're going to defeat him. Remember what Herbert Armstrong said. Yeah, maybe a lot of you don't know it, but he always preached the same thing. One of the things that brought me to him was, don't believe me. Believe what the Scriptures say. He said, don't believe men. Believe what God says. So, I've always used that and tried to find out what it is God wants. Satan will try to deceive you. Does it match Scripture? So, I'd like to just say there are things you can do. We have, I think, almost 1,700 sermons. There are sermons out there. There are sermons, a lot of sermons that are available to you. I think and I do this. Uh, I go back to those to the uh, to the website, and I go and pull up sermons. Uh, uh, Standard for God, um, uh, 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 losing right there. Um, uh, what's clean and unclean? There, are, there's so many sermons out there that when you have a question, if you take those sermons, listen to them. Look at the scriptures, prove that it's what God says. Then you're you've got at least a fighting chance, but you can't beat Satan. And the only way you're going to do that is that everything that we do, everything that we want, we have to 
Get it fixed in your mind. I want to be a part of the bride of Christ. That means Satan's going to be out there. He's going to throw this stuff at you. Be aware of it. Don't allow it to happen. Make the right decision. Go the right way. And and you will win. We know. Herbert Armstrong said that for years. You know the end? If you're doing things God's way, we already know the end. We win. We win. That's the end. Provided that you do all you can. I think Deuteronomy said God set before us life and death, blessings and cursings. And He said, you want to win? Choose life. 